Hello and welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb and I'm delighted that joining me in today's podcast is Tel Higonese. Good morning, Tel. How are you? Lovely to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me, Toby. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us from across the pond in the US of A. Very interested to hear your views on the subject we're going to talk about, which is environmental human rights due diligence laws, which is quite a dry subject, but luckily for you listeners, Tell's very good at bringing them to life. So Tell is a campaigner, a lawyer. You've worked for lots of different environmental organisations. I won't run through all of them. National Wildlife Federation most recently, you've worked for Greenpeace, Mighty Earth, Amnesty International. And I think, tell is it fair for me to describe you as someone who likes to challenge business, but is not ideologically anti-business? That's exactly right. Spot on. You did a webinar the other day on this. And so, of course, you were really up to speed with what's happening to encourage companies to take action on environmental and human rights issues, particularly with regard to deforestation, but also a lot of this legislation includes other components. Why don't we do a quick global tour to start with? of what you see as the most significant developments now. And then let's try and dive into the bit of the detail as we have time. So why don't we start with what Jeff Immel of GE once described as the world's global regulatory superpower, (laughs) the EU. Um, I'm not sure how that applies these days. So where's the EU at at the moment? What does that mean for those listening today? Well, Toby, you're right to start with the EU. It is the leader of the pack, I would say, in terms of innovative, creative, bold proposal for regulating deforestation-free commodities, like high-risk commodities, including palm oil, soy, beef, cocoa, coffee. What's interesting is that worldwide, we're seeing this trend, unstoppable, crazy, exciting trend of three different branches of law. So it's kind of like a family All these sisters are the sort of deforestation-free procurement bills and executive orders and policies that are afoot. And they are cousins with a a pack of brothers, which you could think of as the import regulations. So regulations that would bar deforestation or human rights violations from imports. So those are kind of close relatives. You could think of them maybe even as um, first cousins. And then the sort of more distant cousins, like second cousins twice removed, are these due diligence regulations. And the EU is shining all across those three categories, right? So in the EU, you have this regulation on deforestation-free products, but the EU also can boast the member state, France, having one of the strongest due diligence laws, which is called the Devoir de Vigilance Law, Duty of Vigilance Law, it's already in vigor. And also the German Liefekettengesetz, the German Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, which was passed into law and will enter into force in January 2023. Those are some of the star examples of that third branch. And the EU import regulation is maybe the strongest of all of those brothers that I was talking about in that second branch of the family. But even if you look at the first branch, the deforestation of free procurement, what's really interesting is that France, Wales, and Norway are already shining there. And so what you can glean is that Europe is taking names uh, and putting a lot of the rest of the world to shame in all three of those domains. Will there be a need for this legislation to evolve over time? Because one of the challenges that's been put to me about some of this is it bundles all the activities in one country together and simply says Brazil is a problem or Indonesia is a problem. Whereas you and I both know that in those countries you've got a really broad spectrum where you know one part of the country can there can be an absolute disaster 
and in other parts of the country, there can be some incredible sustainable sourcing landscapes or the beginnings of that, which need to be encouraged. So do you think these laws will need to be nuanced over time to take into account the sort of jurisdictional and regional differences? Or is that just too difficult for lawmakers to do and enforce? The laws evolve over time frequently. You should never think of laws as being a black or white thing, right? You have laws that are progressively rolled out so that there's a timetable for implementation. So for example, the French devoir de vigilance law had a time period when no lawsuits could be brought and companies were given that grace period in order to comply. But you know, there's always the possibility of amendments. That is real, it's on the table. Let's talk briefly about amendments and change and time in the UK. You'd started us off with the EU, I think rightly so. But the UK has a very interesting law. The primary legislation is called the Environment Act. It covers many, many, many things. One of the many things that it covers is regulating imports of high-risk commodities. Now that is a done deal. That you know went through the House of Lords, House of Commons, went through royal assent. It was passed on um, 9th of November 2021, if memory serves me correctly. It would curb imports of high-risk commodities that are tied to illegal deforestation. But the devil's in the details, and what we're now waiting for is implementing regulation, right? So you start with the law, then you get implementing regulation. The implementing regulation, which I believe is going to come from DEFRA, could very well sequence things over time and start with a couple commodities, like hypothetically it could be palm oil and soy, and then trial the implementation and monitoring and then move progressively to cover more commodities. So we don't really know what's going to happen with that implementing regulation, but that's kind of a way of of moving something through time that's not necessarily about amendments. It's about authority in charge of the implementing regulation actually evolving over time and learning. That's possible. But yeah, you know, the, the EU law right now does not include rubber, which is one of the top like eight drivers of deforestation worldwide. That could change. It could get amended later. Let's hop across the pond super briefly. Similar to the EU and the UK import regulations that we've just talked about, the US has also got a federal law on the table, which is called the Forest Act. Some people call it the Schatz Bill because Senator Schatz is really the champion behind it. But the Forest Act also would regulate imports. It would, very similar to the UK, regulate just illegal deforestation coming into American imports for high-risk commodities. It has rubber which the EU doesn't have, but it doesn't have coffee. So that could be amended to include coffee later on. And we've seen actually the entire European coffee industry has come out in favor of being regulated. You know, these beautiful statements from the coffee industry in Europe to the EU regulators. So it's totally possible that there could be amendments down the road with all of these bills, the French, the US, EU, the UK. Laws are not a static thing. And what about rest of the world? One hears of bits of progressive legislation from all sorts of other countries. Are there any standouts for you? Yeah, there are a couple standouts. We talk so much about the EU bill, and I think that brings us back to what you're saying from the quote uh, from Jeff Meltz, right? That the EU is the behemoth of regulation, eh? But Norway has got a lot going on. Norway has got a Transparency Act which is already in force for supply chains as of June 2021. Norway also has a deforestation-free procurement policy 
And that is also just hugely important. So that's a real shiny example. Besides Norway, if we go a little further afield, there's also a movement in Canada. And Canada's got discussions right now on two really interesting corporate responsibilities laws. One is Bill C-263. So if it was passed, this Canadian ombudsman for responsible enterprise would get these long-awaited powers to allow it to engage in credible investigations of business-related human rights violations. That's not deforestation, but it's human rights. And then there's also Bill C-262. If that passes, it would require Canadian corporations operating transnationally to undertake human rights due diligence and prevent human rights abuses that are associated with our business activities. So that might be a cousin to the French devoir de vigilance law. So yeah, Canada's got these two bills. They're doing discussions right now. New Zealand is interesting. New Zealand right now has got discussions going on about a modern slavery act, this due diligence legislation. And that would be designed to stamp out child labor and forced labor in supply chains. But there's also in New Zealand this really nifty movement to amend and improve something called the Forest Legal Harvest Assurance Amendment Bill and make it similar to the EU import regulation of high-risk commodities. So stuff in Canada, stuff in New Zealand, stuff happening in Norway, Switzerland's got the Responsible Business Initiative coming into force this year, 2022. They've talked a lot in Switzerland and tried a couple of times to get close to a law for supply chains. It hasn't happened, but things change. Switzerland could move. Even the Philippines is set to adopt a corporate responsibility law. And then if you look to Japan, it's not a law, but METI in Japan, which is a very powerful ministry, is actually in charge of creating these Japanese guidelines, national guidelines for human rights due diligence for industry. So the guidelines might be a ramp for all we know to future regulation. So I think it's very exciting and it's global. I was contacted recently with my sustainable wine hat on by a casino hotel complex in Macau. I'm not going to say who they are, but they're huge. And I had this sort of panic phone call with someone there who said, the government has told us to do more on sustainability. What should we do? And I said, well, what are you doing now? And they said, well, we're going to do FSC for paper and timber products, and we're going to do MSC for fish. What do we do about food and wine and that sort of thing? So we had a conversation about it. Have you heard anything from the Chinese point of view? I wasn't clear whether that was the government of Macau with a bit of autonomy or whether that was coming from the centre What's the kind of mood music there? Because with all the COVID hysteria of, of their sort of authoritarianism, the news from China tends to get lost a bit, doesn't it? With the, with the focus on other issues. And of course, the Uyghurs and all, and all of that, which is terrible. What are you hearing that's positive out of that part of the world? Well, Toby, this is a great question because, of course, China is a behemoth when it comes to importing high-risk commodities that are connected to deforestation. There's a very interesting ray of light that I am familiar with. It's the Chinese rubber industry guidelines, which are some of the best for a consumer country. Those guidelines could play a key role in tackling land grabs and deforestation. Human rights violations associated with land grabs and FPIC problems associated with land grabs as well as deforestation. And those guidelines are quite serious because they were launched 
by the Chinese Chamber of Commerce of Metals, Minerals, and Chemical Importers and Exporters, which is a long mouthful for CCCMC, which is supervised by the Ministry of Commerce. But that is fascinating because if the Chinese Ministry of Commerce is using the rubber guidelines as a kind of pilot to test out potential guidelines that the Ministry of Commerce could trial for other commodities like cocoa or coffee, even the sort of higher risk titans of deforestation like palm oil and then soy and beef, this could be really fascinating and powerful. And what would be their drivers for genuine interest in this? You often hear these blanket descriptions of the cultures of certain countries saying, oh, you know, they don't care. We all know this isn't really true. I mean, I look at some of the work I've seen in Asia around human rights and you look at assessments of somewhere like Thailand, it's not uniform. There are some bits of society that really care, some institutions that really want to make a difference. Others have compromised challenges, shall we say. What's your sense of that in in China? Why would they want to do that? What's in it for them if all they're interested in is money? Or is that just too simplistic a description? It's too simplistic. The Chinese are not just interested in money. China obviously has major environmental problems, but it also has been a leader in some ways for really important things. And China is right now, this very minute, getting both baked and flooded. It has not escaped the notice of the political and cultural leadership that chaos is hitting them very hard. China may be waiting to see how the European, UK, and US import regulations are going to play out. China may be waiting to see how these deforestation-free procurement bills unfold. There's a procurement bill for New York, for California. There's obviously, as I mentioned before, France, Wales, and Norway. But there's lots of other jurisdictions where lawmakers are talking about deforestation-free procurement bills. Um, So, you know, I think it's quite possible that the Chinese leadership is waiting to see how these laws progress in other jurisdictions. I am not one of those commentators who thinks that all is lost and that China will never regulate deforestation and its imports. There's definitely going to be a moment when lawmakers and decision makers in China realize that climate chaos is costing so much money, is, is responsible for so much havoc and misery and humanitarian catastrophe that there is a strong need for regulatory reform that really goes beyond the borders of China and tries to change the game in the tropics where those forests that are kind of the lungs of the planet are doing such an important job for all of us everywhere. Let's hope you're right. I guess a lot of people have a challenge getting their head around the idea of a sort of authoritarian state getting good on the environment and human rights. Um, But as you say, we're all human beings and looking at the future doesn't matter what your system of power is eventually smart people realize something has to be done let's keep an eye on that it's very interesting so what about the enforcement side of things because we've got primary legislation then you have supporting legislation and then you have the capacity and the will to enforce it which are very different things from a uk point of view we heralded ourselves in the uk as leading the world on the modern slavery act And I think they only ever prosecuted one mattress company somewhere in the Midlands and a few simple cases of the worst forms of exploitation where individuals had been basically kidnapped and turned into slaves on farms. And, you know, good that they did that, but there's not been much else. And I wondered what your sense is of where the will for regulatory enforcement by institutions which are resourced to do that is strongest. I mean, France loves to regulate and they do have a a decent record 
on some forms of enforcement. But are there any particular countries or regions where you feel like enforcement may happen faster? So there's been fascinating and fairly detailed conversations about a, quote, EU observatory, end quote, that would regulate the EU deforestation-free law, which has been proposed and which is moving ahead, you know, through the EU Parliament and Commission and Trilog, et cetera. So I think that is the most sophisticated and advanced conversation that I've been privy to. What would be unfortunate is if the UK, with its environment bill and the implementing regulation, and the US with the Forest Act, and the EU with its deforestation-free procurement bill, what would be unfortunate is if they did not cooperate or harmonize in any way. So, you know, I think a lot of experts in deforestation and traceability in supply chains work and human rights in supply chains work a lot of experts are kind of on tenterhooks to see if there will be a grand deal between the UK, the US, and Europe. It would be unfortunate if there were really strongly divergent methodologies and platforms that were siloed and incapable of communicating with one another that were set up. But there could be a deal between the NASA Climate Czar and an EU observatory and DEFRA in the UK. There could be uh, the UK Space Agency. There's a lot of room for good enforcement to be done in a joined up synergistic way. Now, of course, there's always the possibility of bad enforcement being done in a poor way without joined up synergy between major jurisdictions. You know, it's too soon to tell what the UK and US are going to do because there just haven't been really granular conversations about enforcement in those jurisdictions. In the EU, there have actually been formal talks with EU representatives and informal talks with experts. I organized one of those informal talks with the experts. We brought together in in the thing that I organized around 30 of the world's top experts on supply chains, on traceability, on deforestation, and we sort of wrote up a memo for the EU. Some of the biggest recommendations were please don't reinvent the wheel. We have fantastic tech. We have a huge amount of knowledge already. How can we funnel that tech and knowledge and strategy and vision into the EU observatory, this nascent observatory, which would be built. So that's one big question. And then the other thing, Toby, that was interesting that came out of the expert consultation was that almost all these experts are burning to help the EU, itching to help the EU. They they desperately want to put their expertise at the service of the EU lawmakers. And then one last little thing that I remember being really fascinating and crucial is that the more you think about monitoring and enforcement now, the more you can fine-tune your law before it's set in stone. Of course, you can amend later, as we were discussing earlier, but the thinking about good enforcement now helps you ensure good enforcement later. Whereas if you have lawmakers who've never really considered enforcement and don't know about satellite maps for deforestation, for example, it's harder for them to set up the enforcement agency to succeed. Yeah, I mean, it's no coincidence that Brazil's deforestation rates declined in line with the funding for Obama its enforcement agency who flew in in choppers and arrested people and then suddenly deforestation went down exactly they got kind of defunded and it went up again we sort of forget this conversation about how important institutions are and there's some amazing organizations doing great work out there to help build capacity in law enforcement institutions and it's woefully underfunded and kind of ignored 
but without it, we don't see change on the ground. Let's talk about this observatory a bit more. Who's going to be in that? Because there is a risk, I suppose, isn't there, of just lots of NGOs endlessly accusing companies under this law of, of doing illegal stuff. And then, of course, because there's a law against it, all the lawyers will get involved and we'll have these huge fights. And then all the energy and time will get sucked up with these accusations. And you can see this happening if we're not careful. I suppose the two questions really, how do we avoid that? Because that isn't helpful. And I guess the way we would do that perhaps is to have a commonly agreed definition and a commonly agreed approach to tracking and verifying. And then the question is who then acts as an intermediary or an enforcement agency there? Because we can't just have Greenpeace on one side and Company X on the other because we've been down that road in years past. So how would an EU observatory tackle those challenges, do you think? You're absolutely right, Toby, that it is easy to do this wrong and that we could easily end up with a dysfunctional observatory. But rather than flesh out all the horror stories and the sort of doomsday paths of how we could do it wrong, I think you're also right to hone in on how can we do it right. One of the most interesting ways that we could do it right has to do with some forecasting, right? There's ever better forecasting now of deforestation so that we have an ever better sense of where it is going to happen before it happens. And there's all kinds of exciting breakthroughs in technology. This is around, obviously, like both deforestation for commodity agriculture, but deforestation for mining, where experts have identified all these little warning signs, these red flags. And yeah, you know, it's not always perfect. Sometimes it's 80% accurate or 90% accurate. But I think that a really savvy enforcement system that would help us avoid endless litigation that you're talking about and huge endless conflict is to nip problems in the bud before they transpire. So an observatory that flags up alerts, actionable alerts in a user-friendly system that is designed to be both accessible by industry and governments, producer governments, could really help us get ahead of problems so that we're not talking about compensation and restoration and figuring out how to deal with the damage that was done, but talk about prevention. So I think you could shrink the size of the contentious pie by doing good prevention with good forecasting and actionable alerts. And then the part that isn't fixable, that we can shrink that part of the pie, but is never going to go away completely. Once really bad things happen, what do you do there? If the EU creates a consistent, clear, fair paradigm from the get-go that industry and NGOs can accept, then I think it wouldn't be that contentious. It's really about setting the rules right from the beginning. Let's hope they can do that. And that's always the challenge, isn't it? It's much easier to legislate than it is to tackle the unintended consequences which you might have thought through in advance with a series of structures and deals. And that's, of course, been the problem is one of ideology and one of both sides feeling like the other's being unreasonable. But, you know, we have to be optimistic that we can fix that. It reminds me of the conversation about precision agriculture. We do a lot on that and the technology is enabling us to say, okay, there's a beginning of a disease outbreak on row seven, plant 12, leaf B B140. Go in and zap that with something least toxic or least impactful and you can present, prevent a disease outbreak where normally you just spray the entire field. That's a good parallel with this, in that perhaps technology could help us spot those problems and cut them off at the past. I think about Global Forest Watch is a good example of that. I mean, last time I was in Indonesia, I was with a, a late 2019 with a big forestry company. I was with them and they get an alert from Global Forest Watch that there was a hotspot somewhere and we get in the Land Rovers and 
drive out there to find that some villager had put a new corrugated iron roof, a new shiny metal roof on their hut, and it was reflecting up and showing up as a hotspot on Global Forest Watch. And there was a huge sense of relief that this wasn't a fire, it's just someone with a new roof. It was mind-blowing to me just how fast and responsive they were able to be because of the technology. So I guess it's technologies like that under a commonly agreed process that could really help us have that preventative approach. Easier on deforestation than on the human rights side, I guess, of course. It's easier on deforestation, but you know, you're right to bring up fires. And interestingly enough, there's a sort of intersection between human rights, right to health and fires that drive, of course, deforestation with these fantastic models that Harvard and Columbia University scholars came up with, which model the toxic smog, the smoke from forest fires, so that you can not only know how many people will likely die and get sick, so they kind of model out the mortality and morbidity, but they also use technology and understanding about wind patterns over time and predictions about wind patterns to know who will get sick and die where coming from which fires. And that helps you understand which fires you should try hardest to resolve as a top priority. So, you know, there's a way in which the EU observatory could think about tapping into really top of the line, innovative technology around fires that has emerged in the last couple of years. You know, some of the people that were on that, one of them is a MacArthur Award winner. This is really best in class science, I would say. You know, human rights is, is obviously, it's harder to track like child labor than it is to track mortality and morbidity from haze from forest fires. But actually, my understanding is that as many as around 100,000 people died in the last haze crisis um, from premature deaths So this is really a human rights issue. Most years, I think around 36,000 people suffer premature deaths because of haze. So in a way, technology that's linked to curbing deforestation and fires can really help you deal with some of the right to health human rights that are in supply chains, those risks. But you're right, Toby. It is always more boots on the ground, more difficult, more cumbersome, more expensive to do tracking of things like forced labor, FPIC violation and slavery and child labor investigations and supply chains. Well, this is where we need the awareness raising so people can flag up stuff because, you know, nobody wants this stuff to happen anywhere in the world. I wrote an example of it actually on my blog. Listeners, if you're interested, if you go to sustainablesmartbusiness.com, my blog, and and type in Sumatra or Rial, you'll find the piece I wrote about how April, the forestry company, get villagers to understand why deforestation is a bad idea by starting out by talking to them about the science of haze on their children's lungs. And that was what got villagers' attention. And then you can end up with a process where you prevent deforestation and encourage restoration, but your starting point is child health. And similarly with human rights issues, we have that ability to educate and then things can be flagged. Technology can play an amazing role here. It doesn't all have to be big brother authoritarian state stuff, which I know people worry about with technology. Done right, monitored correctly, we need to use all the tools in the toolbox. But you know, Toby, what's really interesting is that the UK Environment Act, where we're still waiting for that implementing regulation I talked about, when it comes to human rights, the UK law does include FPIC, free prior informed consent, which is especially interesting and important for protecting indigenous rights, peoples who live in forests and other forest dependent communities. But the UK law is not alone, eh? The Forest Act in the US also includes FPIC as well as anti-corruption measures. 
And the EU regulation for deforestation includes the human rights provisions of producer countries, but then there's also this EU due diligence law that would look at human rights. All the laws that we were talking about, plus actually the California deforestation-free procurement bill, the New York deforestation-free procurement bill, Devoir de Vigilance, Lifa Cat and Gazettes, all these laws, they typically do have a human rights component in them. Something that people forget is that when you put technology in the hands of forest-dependent communities, like indigenous groups who live in forests, it can do two really interesting, awesome things. One is for forests and one is for human rights. It's bottom-up using smartphones with apps that empower these forest-dependent communities to report on forest loss. That kind of stuff, it's maybe not as good for figuring out large deforestation events in terms of where those were and when those were, but it's so vital for figuring out who was responsible and why. So, you know, if you're really serious about forest monitoring, you can't just do this top-down satellite mapping. You've got to do the bottom up, right? So if we're talking about like the EU observatory, maybe doing a mega deal with the UK Space Agency and the NASA Climate Tsar and figuring out great enforcement for all these laws, it must include bottom-up community empowerment where you put these smartphones with apps that are now have been trialed all over the world very successfully into the hands of indigenous leaders and communities that are forest-dependent communities so that they can get an alert when there's a satellite map ping. Oh, if you're an indigenous leader, Toby, here's where and when deforestation happened in your forest. And you and your guys can go out to check, or ladies can go out to check who did it and why. So that it's almost like a sandwich. From the top down, you get an alert about where and when, but from the bottom up, you get an alert about who and why. And it turns out this bottom up community-based forest monitoring, which has now gotten so much better and so much cheaper as cell phones and smartphones proliferate, it's not only better at saying who and why, but it's also better at forest degradation detection. So satellite maps tend to do better when it comes to big deforestation, but forest degradation, you, you find it better, more accurately when you empower communities. And the same tools that allow communities to report forest degradation or report who's doing deforestation or why, those same tools can be used so that they can report land grabbing and human rights violations that are associated with that. Technology that's empowering local communities can be plugged into monitoring systems, can be rolled out by having something like an EU observatory that's really creative and robust and trying to find solutions. It gives me just huge hope to think about this community-based forest monitoring and how it could have a great ripple effect for human rights monitoring. Great. Well, that's a great positive point to leave it on. I'm amazed you've done the whole last 35 minutes without looking at any notes whatsoever. <laughs> it's a lawyer's brain applied to the environment and human rights, which has got to be the best use of a lawyer's brain ever. So thank you so much to tell. Really fantastic insights. We'll be discussing this, listeners, more at our Landscapes and Commodities Forum on November 1st and 2nd in Amsterdam. Tickets are limited and everyone's going to be there. Or not everyone, lots of people important people will be there so hopefully you can join us there tell thanks so much i guess uh, listeners can look you up on linkedin if they want to connect with you and doing so because it tells always got fantastic insights as you've just heard so we'll leave it here for now but um just want to say thanks so much Atel. thank you <laughs>